The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome one of my favorite guests back to the program, Dr. Warren Porter. He is a professor of zoology and environmental toxicology at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. His research has shown that combinations of commonly used agricultural chemicals in concentrations that mirror levels found in groundwater can significantly influence immune and endocrine systems, as well as neurological health in animals. His recent research links pesticide exposure in utero to impaired learning, changes in brain function, and altered thyroid. His lab has also shown lawn chemical mixtures at low levels increase abortion rates in lab animals. I have the honor of serving with Dr. Porter on the Beyond Pesticides Board, and we have recently been having some back-and-forth conversation about glyphosate, the most widely used herbicide in the world. It's in our rainwater in the Mississippi River watershed, which is the big swath of the Midwest. And that is according to the U.S. Geological Survey. So welcome, Dr. Porter. It's great to have you back. Thank you. It's good to be back. In all of the papers that we've been passing back and forth, I think the one that probably startled us most had to do with the levels of Roundup or glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, the herbicide, that is being now found in our food. So we sit down with our children or our grandchildren, we give them a bowl of cereal, and all of a sudden we find out, oh my goodness, we're actually feeding our children not only a whole grain cereal, but some glyphosate residue along with that. And this herbicide seems to be ubiquitous in our environment. Tell me, how did you first become interested in the relationship between pesticides and herbicides and our body functioning? It was purely by accident. I was working on another area of my research, which is how do animals interact with their physical environment. And I had developed good models to compute how healthy animals function in the real world. What does it cost them in terms of food and water requirements and that kind of thing? And where can they be on the planet to be happiest, if you will? And then I started thinking, well, now I've got a good model for healthy animals. What happens if they're sick? And so I started working with a disease person who specializes in diseases, infections of bacteria and virus. And he had a friend, Ron Hinstel, who was in bacteriology, who was an immunologist. And the three of us were conversing one day, and Dr. Hinstel in bacteriology said, you know, I just found out something really interesting. And I said, what's that? And he said, well... I've been looking at some of these plant growth regulator compounds, and their structure is almost identical to a known immunosuppressant that we use in transplant operations, you know, for a new liver or something. And I I thought to myself, holy cow, I wonder if some of these pesticides are immunologically active. And so we got some money from the EPA. That was back in the late 60s, early 70s, and... We started doing some research, and sure enough, it turned out that every one of those plant growth regulator compounds 
was immunologically active. And then I really began to get interested because uh, about a year after that happened, I was conversing with someone else who was trying to raise antibodies to aldicarb, which was an insecticide. And she was using these great big white Belgian rabbits, and she was injecting tiny one part per billion doses into these rabbits. And not only were they not producing any antibodies to it, but the rabbits were becoming incredibly violent, becoming vicious. She so vicious that she had to put on falconer's gloves to handle them. And when normally a normal rabbit would be so friendly, you could tie a knot in its ear and it'd smile and say thank you. In effect, you know. <laughs> and when she started talking about how she couldn't get antibodies to this thing, I began to wonder, was this chemical immunosuppressing these rabbits at a part per billion, which was a thousand times lower than EPA says was totally safe. So we started looking at that one and discovered not only was it immunologically active, but the greatest effects were at the lowest doses, not the highest doses. And we couldn't believe it. And so we repeated the experiment four separate times and got the same results every time and knocked down the immune response by more than 50%. And it was really a significant result. They weren't able to make antibodies against foreign proteins, which meant that if you couldn't do that, then you were really vulnerable to new infections that would come along if you were a human and you were in the same boat. So that's a long story, I guess, but that was how we really got into looking at what are the immune effects. And then and then I began reading, and then I discovered that the immune system is tied to the nervous system, which is tied to the endocrine system, which is tied to the immune system. So you get this triangle of three major organ systems in the body, and they were all talking to each other, and they were using about 60 different communication molecules to do all that conversation. So it began to become apparent that if you got a hit on these, you were likely also hitting the nervous and the hormonal systems as well. Mm-hmm. So we tested that over a period of five years with atrazine, an herbicide, and then aldicarb, a carbamate insecticide, and nitrate, all at concentrations that we could measure in groundwater right here in Wisconsin. And sure enough, when we used this on mice, and we had, I think, 12 different experiments there, we got effects on all three organ systems. The mice were much more irritable. They had problems finding things. The immune systems were being suppressed. The thyroid hormones were being knocked down. And the thyroid hormone is a master gland in the body that controls irritability. It controls growth rates and bone growth, all kinds of things. And so it began to be apparent that that pesticides in general were capable of massive impacts on vital systems, and they were doing concentrations way below what EPA said was totally safe. Moreover, the effects were greater as you got to lower doses. So we began to wonder, well, how does that happen? It doesn't make sense. I mean, the EPA always assumes that the lower the dose, the less the effect, but here we were finding the effect was greater. And so we started digging into why that's happening, and what ultimately came out of that was that as you get to those lower doses, there are several complex things that are going on, but basically you're getting down into what we would refer to as the normal physiological dose range, which in humans is somewhere in the parts per trillion. For example, estrogen is 40 parts per trillion, to 400 parts per trillion on a monthly cycle. 
And so we are typically responding physiologically and immunologically to chemicals in those concentrations, which appeared to be part of the reason why we were getting these effects that were so strong at lower doses but weren't effectively being recognized in the same way at higher doses. And the other trouble was that EPA was not looking at immune or endocrine or neurological things. In fact, they never really do, and they never consider inverse dose responses, or that is, greater effects at lower doses. Mm-hmm. They were always testing at very high doses, which were giving you different effects, like cancer. Right. And nor do they look at synergies. So you've got maybe glyphosate with atrazine or glyphosate plus nitrates. So we really don't know the full environmental impact. Uh, absolutely. There have been some studies now. When we did that atrazine nitrate eldercarb thing, we, we looked at all possible combinations and found some synergistic effects as well. Mm-hmm. And others have done that too. So it's pretty clear that multiple chemicals are having not only additive, sometimes synergistic effects, but what's really interesting also is that when you get into these mixtures, each one of them, it's turning out, seems to have its own unique biochemical impacts. That is, it changes the way the body responds at the fundamental biochemical levels. This is research that we're doing now. And so you get a galaxy of effects, an incredibly complex system that seems to be trying to adjust to all those different stressors. And things really start going haywire at that point. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that the age of the organism, the stage of development that we're in, also has an impact on what we're going to see. So, for example, if a child is exposed in utero versus if a child is exposed as a teenager or if we're exposed as an adult, we should anticipate different effects of those chemicals, right? Oh, absolutely. That is so true. Uh, The fetus is especially sensitive to tiny, tiny amounts of chemicals. In fact, in the case of Roundup, for example, recent research has shown that one of the things that Roundup does is it actually stimulates the vitamin A metabolic pathway in the embryo. And vitamin A is a precursor to a key regulatory molecule called retinoic acid. And if that acid is a bit higher than normal, you get all kinds of birth defects. The head doesn't form properly. The neck doesn't form properly. The chest region doesn't form properly. And it's all because of too much of this vitamin A byproduct where there's too much of it. The embryo has to have exact careful amounts. And that also brings me to another important thing about Roundup, and that is, and embryos in general, very few people realize that when they are conceived, and when they were conceived, they were conceived as bisexual organisms. All animals with backbones are initially developing with a male and a female reproductive tract in them, a very primitive one. And about a third of the way through development, the embryo looks at the levels of testosterone, the male sex hormone, versus estrogen, the female sex hormone. Now, if it's a genetic male, typically you'll have testosterone being a bit higher. But if mom has been exposed to estrogenic fake molecules, if you will, we call them technically xenoestrogens or pseudoestrogens, they look like estrogen to the body, and the body responds to them as though they were estrogen. 
So if you have a male fetus and it's got its two reproductive tracts and it's got, instead of more testosterone than estrogen, now the estrogen that's there plus these fake estrogens makes it look like there's a lot more estrogen and the development of the fetus gets confused. And so one of the things that happens is it doesn't develop, in quotes, fully as a male. The nurse cells that are going to be in the testis to produce sperm, there aren't nearly as many of them induced. And so not only do you rewire the development of the testis, but you also rewire the sex development in the brain. And so you wind up with different sexual preferences, as well as reduced ability to produce uh, reproductive materials like sperm. So one particular molecule, in this case uh, Roundup or glyphosate, is capable of multiple, multiple impacts on the body. Yeah. Well, I know we were talking about one of the papers that you shared with me out of reproductive toxicology, and I should let our listeners know that these reports are published in peer-reviewed scientific journals that typically aren't translated for the popular press. But when I read that glyphosate impairs male offspring reproductive development, I stopped in my tracks and I thought, what are we doing when we have mounting evidence pointing to harm to our future? Why do we continue to spray so many millions of pounds? And in fact, the estimated global usage was 8.6 million tons from 1974 to 2014. It's amazing. Let me remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Warren Porter, Professor of Zoology and Environmental Toxicology at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. He is also on the board of Beyond Pesticides. So we've spoken about the birth defects. We've spoken about how this compound will impact our hormonal systems. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the mechanisms by which this particular herbicide behaves. So, for example, we know that glyphosate was first developed as a metal chelator. So we know that it can bind essential minerals in our diet, in our soil. You also taught me that glyphosate was an antibiotic, so I'm assuming that there's also going to be an impact on our gut microbes, which, of course, is becoming the new frontier for health and medicine. Do you want to talk about any of those mechanisms? Yeah, this is really important because there's a lot of controversy these days about GMO products and what might they be doing to our health. The first thing I would want to say is that only certain kinds of GMO crops come into a primary area of concern. These are GMO crops that either produce pesticides, like corn that's producing BT toxins, or pesticide-resistant crops, like soybeans that are resistant to Roundup and now Dicamba, where Roundup isn't working very well, so they're trying to mix that with other pesticides, and so they've got to make these crops resistant to two pesticides instead of one, and that means that we're going to have a double dose of pesticides in our soybeans. But anyway, there are a couple of basic principles that people need to understand as to, firstly, how do pesticides get into the body, and then secondly, why are they so reckless once they get into the body? The testing that's done, firstly, is done only on the so-called active ingredients. So in the formulation roundup, 
they would only test for effects of glyphosate per se. They would not test for the mixture that you would actually buy and use, which contains fat-soluble materials to help the pesticide get through the skin, the outer skin or the respiratory surfaces of a plant or an animal or a human. And then they also have surfactants, which also facilitate entry mostly through respiratory pathways because there are films of water in those respiratory pathways that anything entering the body has to cross. And so these solvents and these surfactants generate basically a uniform or a generic way of getting into the body no matter where they land on the body. So once you get in the body, now you need to get into the cells to kill the organism. And again, these fat-soluble solvents help the pesticide get through the cell membranes because the cell membranes are lipid membranes. They're phospholipids. So basically, they can either dissolve in the membrane or it helps them get into certain kinds of proteins and other molecules that are in the cell membrane so they get inside the cell. Now, the other property is that these molecules, these pesticides, typically have electrostatic or charges on them. They're either positively or negatively charged. And in the case of Roundup, it's got both a positive charge on it and some negative charges. And so there's another basic principle besides the first one I talked about, which is fats dissolve in fats, which is what allows them to get into the cells in the first place. The second major idea is opposite charges attract. And so if you've got a positively charged molecule that you're introducing into the cell, it will be attracted to anything of negative charge. And in the cell, there are all kinds of things that have negative charges, like your genetic material, your DNA. That has a negative charge. So if you've got a molecule with a positive charge, it gets over there with with a molecule with a negative charge, and the two get together, and all of a sudden, you've buggered function. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that glyphosate also does is there's a lot of evidence that it can damage DNA and prevent it from functioning to control the operations of the cell and ultimately of the body. So you've got, just to review, two principles, fats dissolve in fats and opposite charges attract. And those two basic physical principles are what allow these molecules to get inside the body and then inside all the cells, including the cells of your brain, the cells of your reproductive organs, and if you're a woman with a fetus, it's getting into the fetus as well and thereby interacting with all the developmental chemicals and modifying the way the embryo is going to develop in all kinds of different ways. It's sort of like a molecular bull in a china shop. The the possibilities are essentially endless depending on when it's introduced and where it's introduced and where they get in. You know, it's so interesting. I'm listening to the mechanisms involved and I'm thinking at the same time of articles that I've read put out by industry, of course, and given to dietitians so that we can reassure the consumer that genetically engineered crops are totally safe. And I'm thinking when we have a discussion about genetically engineered crops, we do not have enough conversation about what you exactly described earlier, which is genetically engineered crops are mostly designed to be able to either produce their own pesticides in every cell of the plant or to be able to resist increased amounts of spraying with these herbicides. So when we hear somebody tell us, oh, you know, we've been eating these foods for more than 20 years, everything is fine, everything is not fine, 
We're using more of these chemicals. They're getting into our environment. They're getting into us. One of the documents that we were sharing between ourselves was a recent report that was done by Food Democracy Now!, and it had to do with glyphosate unsafe on any plate. This was also done by the Detox Project, I might add, and I'll provide a link to this. But what was so alarming was the report found that there were over 300, 400, over 1,000 parts per billion in some cases of glyphosate found as a residue in these foods, and yet the report is that the permitted level for glyphosate in U.S. tap water is 700 parts per billion, and yet alterations of kidney and liver function in rats is seen at 700 parts per billion. 10 parts per billion, we see toxic effects on the livers of fish. One would think that there would be some concern about this level of contamination not only of our food and water, but of ourselves as well. We know that glyphosate has been found in our breast milk and our urine. I feel like I've been raped. I feel like I've had a toxic trespass, and I don't know what to do next. I find that same situation, and it's extremely frustrating because we have federal agencies that are supposed to protect us, and yet they're not doing anything about it. Several years ago, before the first genetically engineered soybeans hit the market, the tolerance that the EPA had for glyphosate was three parts per million. Mm -hmm. And when the first Roundup-ready soybeans hit the market, they had 25 parts per million in them. And so uh, Monsanto simply went to EPA and said, we need the standards higher, we can't sell the beans. So EPA set the tolerance at 300 or 30 parts per billion. And that process has been repeated as concentrations have gotten higher because farmers are using more and it's dissolving in the beans and staying there ready for the consumer. No, with 700 parts per billion, that's just unbelievable increase. It's Three to 700 is a long way to go in terms of increase. And we know that even three parts per billion are sufficient to be active endocrinologically and probably immunologically and neurologically. Mm-hmm. So, And then if you look at what's been happening in Argentina, Argentina before Roundup Ready Soybeans came there a few years ago, they had a really, relatively very healthy population. But once they started uh, planting Roundup Ready Soybeans and using Roundup and spraying it, they have had a doubling and a, even a quadrupling in some areas of cancers and a whole host of health problems and birth defects and all kinds of other illnesses that have erupted as a result of the introduction of these kind of crops to Argentina. It's a showcase study of how these kinds of chemicals can induce sickness in entire populations in the entire country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems to be so ubiquitous in our environment that I know that I recommend, and you do too, that we choose organic food. That's one thing that we can do. We can filter our water. If you can afford a water filter or to purchase foods that haven't been sprayed or even have access to those foods. But for the masses, they really don't have a choice in the marketplace anymore. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And we have to change the way things can work. We have to change the ability. It used to be that the heads of the EPA and the people that worked there had, if you will, job security. But when the last FIFRA Act was renewed, 
they took away the job security in exchange for some other things that they put in the bill and made the president able to appoint those people at his whim, and every new president who comes in winds up changing the heads of these regulatory agencies that are supposed to protect us. Unfortunately, the choices for those heads have been people from industry, and so they make sure that industry's interests are protected, not the population's interests. We have to change that as a nation. We have to insist that this procedure is shifted. That's one of the first things we have to do. Mm-hmm. But we also have to get money out of politics because the EPA budget is controlled by congressional people who get funded from the chemical industry, and they protect the chemical industry's interests as well. And so you've got a dual pressure on the agency to conform to what industry wants, not what we need for our health. Exactly. And I also think that we need to step back when somebody tells us, hey, we've been eating these foods for more than 20 years and everything is fine. I think you made it very clear from the beginning of our conversation that everything is not fine. And many of the things that you're finding in animal studies, we are seeing in humans today with regard to weakened immune systems, for example, and increased cancer rates among children, that too. That's right. And you talked about the gut a while ago. And I should point out that when these GMO products are introduced, with the pesticides that they either produce or that they carry because they've been sprayed and the fats dissolve in the fats, both of those types of GMO products, when they get into the gut, impact on the gut microbes and the walls of the gut. And we are finding now that the walls of our gut are being punched with holes, that they're becoming leaky, and the materials in our gut that are normally isolated from us are now getting through to the serum in our blood. And that constitutes a real problem because the immune system sees these foreign molecules as potential bacteria or viruses, and so it mounts immune reactions against them. So you start getting all kinds of allergic kinds of reactions, chronic immune stimulation. Mm -hmm. And that's a precursor to at least 10 chronic diseases, including obesity, type 2 diabetes, atherosclerosis, neurological problems, and endocrine problems. And not only that, but Roundup in particular is capable of destroying one of the key protein synthesis pathways, the ones that make aromatic amino acids. And what that does is prevents the plant, uh, the bacteria, from making the proteins that they need, and so they die off, and the whole gut flora microbiota changes and makes room for really toxic bacteria that take over from the good bacteria that are synthesizing vitamins and doing a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. About 70% of our immune system function comes from our gut function, and so as we attack and destroy our gut functions, we are simultaneously attacking our immune functions as well. Absolutely. And that means also endocrine changes and neurological changes. Well, Doctor, Everything is interconnected here. Exactly. 
Everything is interconnected. We are going to have to end because our time is up, but I want to just remind our listeners that we have been speaking with Dr. Warren Porter, Professor of Zoology and Environmental Toxicology at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. I will make sure to provide links, Dr. Porter, to your website there at the university, as well as some of the studies that we've been talking about. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Dr. Porter, thank you again for your expertise and sharing and helping us understand how indeed everything is connected. Well, thank you very much, Melinda. I enjoyed this.